Welcome to Earth Matters, stories of environmental and social justice produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, I'm Helen Gwilliam. Biodiversity is a term constructed from the words biological diversity and describes the variety of life on Earth, the variety of animals, plants, habitats, genes and ecosystems. The International Union for Conservation of Nature has estimated that every day species extinctions are continuing at up to a thousand times the natural rate. An article in the journal Science this month said one in six species will be lost if action isn't taken to address climate change. The article also said biodiversity in Australia and New Zealand will be hit much harder than other countries and continents because of the high number of species not found anywhere else on Earth and those species' inability to migrate. So, maintaining landscapes that support and protect biodiversity is a huge challenge, and not least because it relies on many, many individual landholders working together and consistently over time. Next month, a conference in Ballarat in Victoria will bring together land managers, landowners, researchers and conservationists to look at the challenge of maintaining biodiversity across the borders. I spoke to Associate Professor S.K. Florentine, known far and wide as Flory, about the challenges of sustaining and restoring biodiversity in Australia. Thank you, Flory, for joining us today on Earth Matters. Uh, thanks, Ellen. Thanks for the invitation. Now, we're going to talk about the Biodiversity Across the Borders conference today. There are so many specific threats to biodiversity in Australia, from pests, loss of vegetation, urban development, climate change. Why is the conference looking at biodiversity from the broad perspective of rural landscapes? Uh, as you pointed out in the introduction, pro- approximately two-thirds of Victoria in pri- is in private land and most occurring as a, in, in the rural landscapes. Although the rural landscapes are largely agricultural, but uh, it is important that we should understand these uh, landscapes contain uh, critical natural resources. Uh, few such examples, grasslands, threatened wetlands, and you name it. If you allow me to give some facts and figures, approximately 45% of the remaining western um, plain grasslands are mainly in the rural uh, road sites. 70% of the state wetlands uh, environments are in the rural landscapes. So the, the most critical component is the connectivity of these rural landscapes. So they are not really well connected due to the or anthropogenic activities that we have uh, done on this uh, area. However, there are a lot of uh, restoration programs such as BioLink programs are going on connect these areas. But this particular conference, we are focusing on the rural landscape mainly because there are a lot of researches going on uh, in this area. Uh, if we really want to manage these particular uh, rural landscapes, it is important that we should bring all the researchers uh, and to provide some platform for the uh, rural landscape managers or the landholders and share their information so that the lands or the natural resource can be managed properly. So you mentioned there are multiple land managers. We've had decades of landscape scale restoration programs through catchment management programs, land care, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How do we take the right approach that is sustained so that everyone is all heading in the right direction? Mm. Well, it is a very, very important question that I have been 
uh, involved in the restoration program, particularly in the rural landscape for 15 years or so. And uh, just a few, allow me to capture some of those uh, expenditures or the the amount of money that the Australian government has invested uh, in the restoration programs. Uh, uh, in 2000, 2001 alone, during that period, the Australian government invested around just over $36 million to re-establish a native vegetation and to provide an appropriate habitat for wildlife. On top of that, there are a lot of voluntary organizations, uh, philanthropic organizations, and they have also contributed a huge amount of time uh, towards restoration project. Uh, now, the, despite all the uh, substantial financial and human investment, little or no monitoring of work has been undertaken of those past restoration efforts and see whether we are traveling on a appropriate trajectories or we are uh, whether the desired ecological benefits have been resulted. As you know, Professor Sam Blake, one of the leading uh, ecologists uh, in wetlands, he reported just over 2,240 restoration projects uh, undertaken in Victoria in four catchments. This is a huge amount of projects and huge amount of money gone into that. Of those 2,240 projects, only 14 of them included some kind of a monitoring. This is mainly because the the funding doesn't allow uh, the land care groups or those who involved in the restoration program to assess whether we are traveling on a correct trajectory. Uh, at the Biodiversity Conference, and, uh, and I'll be one of the speakers, I'll be talking about the project uh, that we carried out here at the Federation University of Australia. It was a three-year project. It was funded by the Australian Research Council and three industry partners, Corangamite Catchment Management Authority, uh, Glenel Hopkins Management Authority, and as well as the Parks Victoria. So we looked at the last 20 years of uh, restoration sites uh, across uh, two catchments, and we had done assessments of uh, uh, flora, fauna, soil seed bank, you name it, we have done it. So mainly we wanted to find out whether are we making positive impact on this one. In a nutshell, uh, what we found is... Uh, there is the species have been planted at a random location rather than the suitable or ideal spots on the landscape. For example, species are more towards the water tolerant, are planted on the um, on the river bank, and the seedlings have been planted in a rows. It's like a plantation kind of thing rather than the a cluster format. That's what the natural ecosystem looks like. Uh, most of the sites, the shrubs or ground layers are missing mainly because they are hard to uh, uh, germinate. And what are the seedlings available in the nursery? And that's what they end up in the restoration programs. At the same time, I'm not criticizing here. That's how the funding is formulated in such a way. So the land care groups or the, uh, the those who are involved in the restoration program, they try to do whatever they can. So they are all good. But at the end of the day, we need to take a step back and see whether are we making a good progress in restoration. Well, I think that we need to take a hard look at what we have been doing. In, in the last 20 years, although restoration ecology has been going on in Australia for, from 1930s, our knowledge on the ecological restoration efforts has increased significantly. We need to shift our design priorities. We need to take the climate change into consideration, uh, and attention should be given to the species.
species specific to particular areas and their future needs. We cannot simply plant what is available in the nursery in the restoration program. And more than that, the attention should be given to the larger scale restoration. There are a lot of habitat one-for-one restoration programs going on from the out back to ocean, Gondwana in, in, in Western Australia. There are a large number of flagship biolinks programs going on as well. So it is important. Yes, we are making uh, invest a lot of money. We are planting large number of trees, but we need to take a hard look at under the uh, climate change scenario. We need to build into those things. Then only we will make some positive impact. Otherwise, in 50 years' time, we'll back to the scale one. That suggests there needs to be quite a different approach in some ways because certainly in Victoria, so much of land restoration relies on private individuals putting their hand up and saying, I'm willing to do this on the land that I currently own. Some, Many of them then, of course, move house or ch- sell the land within a, a, a reasonably short period in ecosystem terms. Are we really saying that there needs to be much more of a top-down approach from government and all these land management agencies you're talking about saying these are actually the, the priority areas and we can't be distracted by willing volunteers on areas that are less important? Yeah. Now, the... the, the this is a challenge, and you know, I'm not denying that. Uh, but people are pretty aware of the importance of the biodiversity. Uh, most of the restoration efforts are either along the riparian areas or, or mainly in the middle of the paddocks or the boundaries. The, a lot of landholders are involved in the land care group and land for wildlife programs. So most of them have contributed towards the environmental voluntary work. The, 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 the critical component is that uh, we are trying to show that we are a good citizen of this country, but at the end of the day, uh, we need to look at the uh, a mega scale. We need to look at the, uh, at the end of the day, we need to conserve the bio- biodiversity. But the funding doesn't allow to do that. Uh, the funding restriction is so important as well. And so the, the one of the examples is funding comes to the June or July. The landholders expect to hit the ground in August or September. So within a short period of time, it is impossible uh, to do a lot of groundwork and as well as the work around the collective species and everything. So the, it should be a longer term. It can be five years or six years program. So there should be some uh, step-by-step approach as well. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Helen William. And I'm talking to Associate Professor S.K. Florentine of the Federation University about the challenges of protecting and restoring biodiversity across multiple landowners and multiple communities. The um, keynote speaker at the conference is Ian Lunt, who's a well-known vegetation ecologist, and he'll be talking about how to improve general ecological literacy. Is biodiversity just too abstract or complex an idea for the general public to develop a real understanding and concern for biodiversity protection? Yeah. <laughs> I, I teach uh, undergraduate students about the biodiversity, and, and the first thing I say, biodiversity is a very complex area, and the uh, numerous components are interlinked. Even researchers working in the particular ecosystem for several years and find difficult to understand sometimes certain changes, and so sometimes they're difficult to answer some of the things. So it is difficult for the landholders or the farmers to understand. But the important thing I should mention is the farmers hold the legacy data. They they know they they have uh, uh, you know we have been working in that area they have been the land has been passed on to them from the great grandfathers so they know the uh, history of the land 
they know what is actually happening uh, in relation to the, the trees around the property and what is the soil around the corner, what, what, what sort of bird species are coming and what sort of species are disappeared. They have wealth of information. And it, it is a biodiversity itself is a very complex, but as scientists and the um, landholders and the catchment management authorities, the government agencies, we should work together uh, to conserve the biodiversity in a rural landscape. So it is a complex, but if we work together rather than the silos, then we might be able to overcome some of those difficulties. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that Federation University Australia itself manages, uh, I think it's 40,000 hectares of land for teaching and research and conservation. Tell us more about that. Where is it and what have you been able to achieve in ecosystem restoration? Yes, it's one of the uh, very few universities, and I would say it's one of the very uh, handful of universities, they have this kind of a research station. The, the Nanya Research Station is located uh, in New South Wales, uh, which is around uh, 100 and 200 kilometers northwest of uh, Mildura. So we have 40,000 hectare magnificent property in that area, full of uh, luxuriant biodiversities, natural salt lakes, old growth mallees, and variety of intact ecosystems such as Mali ecosystem is one of the intact Mali ecosystem is there. The university has been proud custodians of Nanya since 2004, and a larger number of students have been using that area. The purpose that we bought it for mainly for teaching, uh, research, and conservation. We are conserving Nanya for a range of things, and uh, one of the issues that you may have heard, the, um, the groundwater tanks cause a lot of problems uh, for pest plants, animals, and the uh, grazing and all sorts of things. So what we have done is we have done a landscape scale study to close those earth tanks completely and to look at what are the biological biodiversity impact of uh, by closing those areas as well we have been doing for the last four years. And we have been managing a lot of uh, endangered flora and fauna communities by using exclosures and fencing around uh, critical communities. The arid zone is very, uh, very uh, low rainfall, sporadic. Now you're talking about you know, 180 to 210 or 220 millimeters rainfall. So to do a restoration work may not work. It's all depend on the amount of rainfall. So what we have been doing, we doing is we have been strategically uh, fencing off a uh, larger number of areas to allow the passive restoration taking place. And one of the iconic species that we are protecting one is uh, the Mali fowl population by exotic predator, by controlling, monitoring their nest sites and everything. And uh, we have identified over 400 flora and fauna species have been recorded uh, in Nanya stations. And nine of them either not previously been recorded or have restricted distribution in western New South Wales. There are 22 plant communities in Nanya. So we do a lot of research work and we also showing an example uh, how the low, the cost effective way of managing a private land as well. So there are a large number of PhD students, honors and third year students are using. And I take my Arizona uh, ecology students for uh, a 10 day field trip up there. So uh, it's a very good example and the university, uh, we're we're, we're really proud to have it. And one of the key persons contributed a significant amount of time is uh, uh, Emeritus Professor Martin Westbrook and he contributed a lot. 
significant part of his life towards conserving uh, these areas as well. So we are really very proud. And we always encourage the visitors to come and see. And there are a lot of uh, activities going on. If they are really keen, if the listeners would like to visit uh, or see some of the things, uh, please, they are most welcome to contact me and I'm happy to organise that for you. Thank you very much, Flori. So where can people find out more information about the Biodiversity Across the Borders conference? Uh, we have circulated the conference uh, information to the broader range of community, and we have opened the uh, Facebook, and we have mounted there. If you type Biodiversity Conference, and you will get all the information there as well. Uh, and if anyone out there would like to get more information, uh, they can send an email to me, uh, s laurentine at federation.edu.au. I'm happy to provide the registration form. Uh, last year we had just over 500 people and we already registered 460 people registered. So there are a few more spots available. Uh, please feel free to give me a call and um, yeah, looking forward to see some of the... This time, as I mentioned, there's a larger number of people are coming from South Australia and New South Wales as well. So these kind of interviews really help uh, for the uh, this kind of a conference to publicize our work and it is also important for the listeners to come along and participate and learn what the researchers are doing as well. So it is a good opportunity and really appreciate uh, your time. Thanks to Flory, also known as Associate Professor S.K. Florentine of the Federation University. The Biodiversity Across the Borders conference takes place in Ballarat in Victoria on the 12th of June. If you'd like more information, just email Flory at s.florentine at federation.edu.au And if you're interested in finding out more about Nanya Station, the university's conservation research property, just go to federation.edu.au and search for Nanya. Communicating the importance of biodiversity is a huge challenge, not least because the human race seems largely unable to value or protect the natural environment for its own sake. But animals and plants will not be the only casualties of failing to care about the rate of species extinction or about unfettered climate change. Biodiversity loss, accelerated by climate change, has serious impacts for people as well as for ecosystems. Vandana Shiva, well-known environmental and anti-globalisation activist from India, has spoken often about the economic and security benefits that rich and diverse ecosystems provide to humankind. The disappearance of diversity is a threat to security at the ecological level because without diversity there is no ecological stability. Diversity is the ground for adaption, it's the ground for mutuality, it's the ground from which systems can deal with the vulnerability and resilience um, that climate change are going to bring us, that pest and disease infestation brings to production systems, etc. But it's also an economic security threat. It's an economic security threat because biodiversity systems lend themselves to being worked with creatively through human cooperation, which means they generate more livelihoods, they generate more employment, they enable more people to live on the land. Monocultures are not just a disappearance of diversity, of other species, monoculture production system by their very nature are replacing biodiversity and human energy with fossil fuels, toxic chemicals. And that necessarily means less livelihoods, 
on the land. It is not an accident that small farmers are disappearing everywhere. Therefore, the disappearance of species in nature goes hand in hand with the disappearance of small producers in our rural ecosystems. Disappearance of biodiversity is also a political security threat, something that's not well enough understood, I believe, by people who deal directly with security issues and peace issues. It makes for absence of peace because it creates threatened communities. But it also makes for absence of peace because centralized systems, depending on fossil fuel flows across thousands of miles, wanting to defend the interests of five corporations, wanting to claim seed markets worldwide, five grain trading corporations like Cargill needing a WTO free trade rules to create markets around the world, um, patent laws equally coercive, these are imperatives of defense of centralized political systems, economic systems, based on the extinction of diversity, but they can only stay in place through huge deployment of militarized defense. And that security threat, I believe, is what is being witnessed today in the world. It's not an accident that immediately after the so-called end of the Iraq war, which we know hasn't ended, the first contract went to Bechtel, $650 million. The entire food program went to the car likes of the Cargills. And out of the destruction of the local production systems came the market opportunities for global corporations. But they require massive defense. And as someone I don't agree with too much, Thomas Friedman, has correctly said, for the spread of McDonald's in the world, you have the McDonald Douglases. India is a microcosm about of what's happening around the world because India is a billion people. And India is a billion people who looked after themselves from the land of India, the biodiversity of India, the water of India. Now all of these resources are being eyed by those global corporations. And that means everywhere, in every corner of India, ordinary people, local communities are pitted against a Coca-Cola trying to mine the water. In 55 places they set up plant. Each plant is mining 1.5 million litres. group of women got together in Kerala because Coca-Cola was wiping out the water in the area, 10 miles radius. We worked together. We mobilised the national movement in their support. The plant is shut down. We've created movements around every plant. Different people are taking leadership. A Digambar Jain monk, these are the Jains who wear no clothes because they believe even clothing is violence. He is leading the campaign against a Pepsi plant in the center of India. These are new struggles which will never be reported by the Herald Tribune and the Financial Times, but we don't care because we are shaping the future of our history. Basmati, a famous rice from my valley. It means, the name itself means the queen of aroma. We know we received it through generations of breeding. Some stories even tell us that the first varieties of basmati were brought from Afghanistan to India. When we plant our basmati seed, we say thank you to nature. We say thank you to the particular soils of our area which bring forth the aroma because you can take the same seed to another soil and the aroma won't be there. And we say thank you to Afghanistan or whoever evolved it first. But a company in Texas called RiceTech claims to have invented the aroma, the plant, its height, the grain, the methods of cooking. We fought that battle 
and had that patent overturned and that piracy overturned. We're now busy dealing with Monsanto, which claims to have invented an ancient wheat variety, which was basically pirated from India. And I know we will reclaim that patent. We shouldn't have to be doing this. We shouldn't have to be telling the world, no, wheat is not Monsanto's property, and we do not want to live in a world where when people say, give us this day our daily bread, they're saying a prayer to Monsanto. We don't want to be reduced to that situation. And uh, building on Gandhi's legacy, I think we have made a difference because we've been able to identify globalization not as human solidarity, but as corporate takeover of vital resources. We've managed to stop Coca-Cola in, in, in places. We've managed to prevent Suez from privatizing the Ganga. At least for two years now, they have not been able to do it, even though they had the plan. And I hope we can make sure it never happens. I think what we are really witnessing is corporations trying to own the earth, life on earth, and living processes as, as if they were their monopoly, their property, their commodity. But most of the things on this planet a common property, including that little bee that was buzzing around me. It is the creator of the ultimate commons by taking the pollen from this plant and taking it somewhere else. It is turning the entire web of life into a shared life support base. And that's the struggle. That's why our movement against global corporations globally is a very simple statement. Our world is not for sale. When we fight sways on the banks of the Ganga, the people take the water and say, our mother Ganges is not for sale. That was Vandana Shiva, a bit of a favourite of the Earth Matters team. If you want to find out more about her work, go to vandanashiva.com. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Helen Gulliam. Thanks again to Associate Professor S.K. Florentine of the Federation University. Today's podcast and others like it can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the Community Radio Network for distributing this show all around Australia. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria. Our phone number is 03 9419 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Earth Matters will be back next week with more environment and social justice news. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.